Hello, and welcome to World of Warbirds. I'm Brian Pierce. You may have seen one while looking at a group of warbird pictures, or perhaps scrolling through your social media feed, which, if it's like my feed, is full of airplane posts and pictures from various aviation groups and pages. You may have thought, wait, what is that? Is that a late model Spitfire? Or maybe it's a Mustang? No. Is that the French fighter, the Duantsin, that we hardly ever hear about? No. Wait a minute, it's got a star as the marking, but why is the star red? Oh yeah, you've just spotted a yak. Not a big hairy animal, but the Russian warbird fighter. Growing up in the West, we've been exposed to pitiful little information about Russian aviation. If we've heard about any Russian World War II aircraft, it's probably the IL-2, the redoubtable Sturmovik, which will definitely be the subject of a future World of Warbirds episode. However, when it comes to the air war in the East, mostly we have heard about the Russians receiving and using Lend-Lease cast-offs. During our episode on the Hurricane and the Warhawk, we learned that both aircraft were shipped over to Russia when they became a little long in the tooth for American and British pilots. P-39 Air Cobras were also sent to Russia when their performance wasn't appreciated by the pilots of the Western Allies. But what about the homegrown Russian birds? Let's get the story behind one of them, the Yak family of fighters. Design and Development Alexander Sergeyevich Yakolev was born in 1906 in Moscow and seems to have been obsessed with aviation at a very early age. He built his first model airplane for a school project when he was 16 years old. Two years later, he built a glider that actually flew. Alexander won an award for the effort. The award was nice, but what he really wanted was to get into the Zhukovsky Air Force Military Engineering Academy. However, Alexander's father was in the Russian oil business, and this seems to have actually worked against young Alexander's application. He was rejected multiple times for his, in quotations, lack of proletariat origins. It took three years of trying, but eventually Alexander was admitted to the academy. He graduated in 1931, and there was no stopping him from that point. His own aviation design organization, the Yakolev Design Bureau, was established in 1932. In 1940, Yakolev began working on the first of the World War II Yak fighters, which was originally known as the I-26, but was later known as the Yak-1. There were so many problems with the Yak-1 that it seems amazing that it actually made it into production at all. Firstly, the Klimov M105P V12 engine had so many oil overheating problems that 15 emergency landings occurred during the test flight program. Not an auspicious start. In April 1940, a prototype crashed, killing the test pilot, which certainly did not look good for the aircraft's future either. It was later decided in the official investigation that the pilot was doing unauthorized aerobatics instead of following the test plan. The declaration of test pilot error kept the aircraft in the running, but just barely. The oil overheating problems continued, 
as well as the aircraft was becoming almost 900 pounds overweight from its original plans and specifications. The aircraft was still in the middle of fixing severe teething problems in 1941 when Operation Barbarossa crashed into Russia. Although there were other Russian fighter aircraft being designed, the Yak-1 was lucky enough to be slightly ahead of the others in its evolution. So, efforts were concentrated into getting it into production. It probably helped that Yakolev was favored by Joseph Stalin. But still, building the Yak-1 was a nightmare. Firstly, the aircraft was basically being tested and redesigned again and again as they were trying to ramp up production. There were about 15,000 design changes of all types being made to the aircraft even as they tried to build as many of them as possible. It didn't help at all that the factory was bombed and burned down on June 23rd. Amazingly, production resumed in the ruins less than a week later. Shortages of just about everything made manufacturing incredibly difficult and the rushed and slapdash nature of production meant that almost no two Yak-1s were exactly the same, and the use of faulty materials meant that bits would sometimes come flying off the aircraft in flight. Many of them had no radios, which didn't matter much anyway, as the Russians' radio equipment was not known for its reliability. It does seem amazing that the fighter could actually tangle with their main enemy, the fearsome BF-109s at all. The Yak-1 was also undergunned, but Soviet pilots were known to say that if you could get in close enough and if you had better shooting skills, that didn't matter. Amazingly, Yakolev built almost 9,000 of the type. Now, often in this podcast, we have to talk about confusion in warbird naming conventions. However, with the Yak, it has been brought to truly epic proportions. You would think that the eventual replacement for the Yak-1 would be the Yak-2, right? No, 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 no. The story is much better than that. First, at some point, a team from Yakolev was split off in order to make a training version for the Yak-1. This was known as the Yuchebno Trenovichny Istrobel or UTI, an acronym for training aircraft. And I do want to apologize to any Russian speakers for that pronunciation, if it's as bad as I think it was. However, along with designing and building the dual training aircraft that you would expect, they seemingly accidentally produced another single-seat fighter. They left the rear seat with no controls for high-speed courier duties, or extra gear, or whatever. And did they name this one the Yak-2? No, it was the Yak-7. And was Alexander Yakolev upset when he heard about what his breakaway team had done? It seems not. The new aircraft was good, and they ended up building over 6,000 of them. So what was the Yak-2 anyway? It was a twin-engine bomber, not a fighter at all, and we are not going to talk about it here. When they wanted to update the Yak-7, of course, they named it the Yak-9. The designation of the Yak-8 was already taken, being a twin-engine transport, and we're not going to talk about that one either. Now, the Yak-7 had already been an improvement on the Yak-1. It was known to be simpler, tougher, 
and generally better than its predecessor. It had tighter tolerances, with more refinements, such as the tailwheel being retractable. Everything fit together better, and the crews liked it. So to replace it, Yakolev had to come up with something good. The result was the Yak-9. The Yak-9 allowed the pilot great visibility from its all-around vision canopy and lowered rear fuselage, like the P-51 or one of the later Spitfires. Lighter all-metal duraluminum construction allowed the new fighter to carry more fuel and armament. It was maneuverable, easy to control, and fast at low to medium altitudes. In 1942, it was the right machine at the right time to allow the Soviets to claw back air superiority from the Luftwaffe's Focke-Wulf FW-190s and Messerschmitt BF-109 Gustavs. It was a very versatile aircraft, with variants meant for anti-tank and long-range escort roles. There was even a light bomber role with an internal bomb bay just behind the pilot. Even so, it was still very maneuverable, and German pilots were known to avoid getting into a scrap with it. The Soviets built almost 17,000 of them, and they remained in service even after the war, and were used by the North Koreans in the Korean War. The Yak-3 was actually introduced after the Yak-9. I told you their numbering system was crazy. It was one of the smallest and lightest fighters of the war. With its 1,290 horsepower Klimov VK-105 PF2 V12 engine, this high power-to-weight ratio allowed it to have great performance and be an excellent dogfighter. Like all the Yaks, it had a cowling-mounted gun firing through the propeller disc and a single Mortornaya Pushka mounted or engine-mounted 20mm SHVAK cannon firing through the prop hub. The lack of number of guns was made up for by a high firing rate. But, as I said before, Russian pilots prided themselves on getting in close and shooting straight. The Yak-3 was known as a forgiving and easy-to-handle aircraft for both novice and experienced pilots. It was tough, but easy to maintain. The Soviets built more than 4,800 of them. There's an argument to be made that this flock of Yak warbirds were all essentially the same basic design, and that in another service, they would have been grouped together under one type with various marks or models. And in that case, with 37,000 of them built, it would have been the most produced fighter and one of the most numerous aircraft type in history. The most produced aircraft was the IL-2 Sturmovik, until after the year 2000, when the humble and peaceful Cessna 172 would surpass it with 44,000 built. And, you know, they're still building them. Pilots. Although I could have chosen any of the many Soviet aces to profile, I'm going to take an opportunity to introduce you to Lydia Lidvyuk, the first of two female fighter pilots to earn the title of ace. Because of the mores of the day, there were no female combat fighter pilots in the West. But things were different in the Soviet Union, which allowed for a woman like Lidvyuk to become a fighter pilot and fight in combat. She flew the Yak-1. 
Lydia Vladmirovna Litviak, also known as Lilia, was born on the 18th of August, 1921, in Moscow. Her mother worked in a shop, and her father was a railway man, until he disappeared in the Great Purge of 1937. Lilia was bitten by the aviation bug early. She joined a flying club when she was 14, and she soloed at 15. When the war broke out, she was a flight instructor who had already trained 45 pilots how to fly. She attempted to join the Soviet Air Force, but was turned away for lack of experience, and so she did what many up-and-coming pilots have been tempted to do over the years. She took a pen and wrote in another hundred hours in her logbook. She was accepted in the all-female 586th Fighter Aviation Regiment of the Air Defense Force, and there she learned to fly the Yak-1. Once her training was completed, Lilia was transferred to the 437th Fighter Regiment, which was a men's unit and was operating over the Stalingrad battlefield. Her commander said of her that she was a very aggressive person and a born fighter pilot. Now, if you look at her photo, the one that most often accompanies her biography, she doesn't look like a killer. In my opinion, she actually seems to have the face of a doll, smooth and soft with short curly hair. But wait, check out those eyes. They do seem to have a very determined and focused look. They look quite suited to squinting through a gun sight and squeezing the trigger. And it didn't take very long for her to do just that. On her third day in the regiment, she was part of a mission of four Yak-1s over Stalingrad when they spotted a group of Yunkers JU-88s escorted by Messerschmitt BF-109s. They dove in on the attack and Lilia's target, a JU-88, fell from the sky in flames. She was the first female fighter pilot in the world to get a kill. She didn't stop there. On that same day, she knocked down a 109 that had been on the tail of her squadron commander. The pilot of the 109, Staff Sergeant Erwin Meyer, had been able to jump for it and parachute it to safety. When he was captured by Soviet soldiers, he asked if it would be possible to meet the pilot who had shot him down. When he met Lilia, he thought that the Soviet soldiers were making fun of him. However, once she started describing their dogfight in exquisite detail, he knew that it was true. Lilia got a couple of more kills, but then was forced to move units several times as they converted to other aircraft, and she and her female colleagues always flew the Yak. In February 1943, when she was a member of the 73rd Guards Fighter Aviation Regiment, she was chosen to be a pilot flying an elite air tactic known as Okotniki, or Free Hunter. These pairs of experienced pilots would head out on their own looking for a fight, and they often found one. Lilia was forced to land twice due to battle damage. One day in March, she and five other Yak-1s jumped a dozen Ju-88s. Lilia knocked down a Yunkers, but then herself was bounced by a BF-109 and was wounded in the encounter. She managed to land while suffering in severe pain and losing a lot of blood. After recovering, she began flying again, often as the trusted wingman of Captain Alexei Solomatin, who was a 
Soviet ace with 39 kills to his credit. On May 21st, his aircraft augured into the ground and he was killed in full view of the whole regiment. Lilia was devastated by the crash and later admitted to her mother in a letter that she had been in love with Alexei. She didn't stop fighting, though. In fact, her mechanic, Senior Sergeant Pasportnikova, said later that Lilia only wanted to fly combat missions after that. She had several more kills in July 1943, including another Ju-88 and two Bf-109s, and was shot down herself, being forced to Bellyland. She was wounded again, but would not allow herself to be placed on medical leave. On August 1, 1943, she was escorting a formation of IL-2s. It was her fourth sortie on that day, and they were jumped by a group of 109s. Lilia's Yak-1 was last seen being pursued by as many as eight 109s, and she did not return to base. She was 21 years old. Because no one could find her body or identify where she had crashed, there was the possibility that she had been captured by the Germans. This possibility meant that she was ineligible to earn the title of Hero of the Soviet Union. However, her longtime mechanic that I mentioned before, Inya Pasportnikova, never gave up on Lilia and spent almost the next 40 years with a metal detector looking for and investigating crash sites. She found 90 sites and investigated 30 aircraft and found many pilots that had just disappeared during that chaotic conflict. In 1979, she discovered that a dead female pilot had been found and buried by the villagers of Dmitrievka. The body was exhumed and investigators determined that it was in fact Lilia. She had been killed by a head wound. In 1990, Mikhail Gorbachev finally, posthumously, awarded her title Hero of the Soviet Union that had been denied her for so long. Several old cultures describe a place where warriors go after their death, and I think it's compelling to think of Lilia and Alexei there together, once again flying their Yak-1s, soaring over the Elysian Fields or Valhalla. Survivors. I haven't been able to identify any surviving Yak-1s, Yak-7s, or Yak-9s, although there are some examples in museums, and I am open to be proven wrong if someone lets me know. The Seattle Museum of Flight has a beautiful example of a Yak-9U, which is the only one of four original aircraft known to exist, and the only original Yak-9 on display in the West. It has the original engine, propeller, and the instrumentation is all vintage Russian. The Southern California wing of the commemorative Air Force has a beautiful flying Yak-3. It is a replica, however, it was built on the same assembly line using the same jigs as the 1940s aircraft, but built in the 1990s. So what do you call that anyway? An original replica? Its original Klimov engine has been replaced with an easier-to-maintain Allison V-1710. It has been painted in the livery of Capitaine Marcel O. Albert of the Normandie-Niemen Free French Squadron, 
which fought in Russia. He flew the Yak-3 in 1943 to 1944 with this paint scheme. We will be revisiting Captain uh, Albert later in another episode, and trust me, he has quite the story, and it will be worth it. Take a look at the pictures of his Yak-3 on the World of Warbird Facebook page to see what a tiny, nimble fighter it was. Compared to the P-51, its wingspan was actually 7 feet shorter, and its overall length is 5 feet less. So I hope you have found this short peek into Russian aviation illuminating. Let me know if you have any other requests for an episode on Soviet or other aircraft. And I would like to thank the Southern California Wing of the Commemorative Air Force for the information and the images from their website.